0: Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the artistic director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival. And because we're still dealing with the pandemic, we're going to keep connected virtually, even as we maintain our distance. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book, and of course, you can't go wrong supporting your local independent bookseller. Our spring season runs until early June and it's all available online at writersfestival.org. So all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Today, we're going to be spending time with Annalee Newitz. Annalee writes science fiction and nonfiction. They are the author of the novels, The Future of Another Timeline and Autonomous, which won the Lambda Literary Award. As a science journalist, they are a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and have a monthly column in New Scientist. They are also the co-host of the Hugo Award-winning podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct. Previously, they were the founder of io9 and served as the editor-in-chief of Gizmodo. Anna Lee will introduce us to their latest book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, and then we'll talk about what the cities of the past can tell us about the road ahead.
1: Cities is a look at recent archaeological discoveries that shed light on why people abandoned uh, ancient cities that were really at the heart of their civilizations. So the question is, um, why after spending sometimes centuries building a city would people turn their backs on it? Um, and so there's been uh, a great deal of work over the past 20 years um, among archaeologists and historians and anthropologists. I'm kind of trying to figure out why these movements happen, these, these big social movements where people kind of come into a city and come out of a city. And that was what I was interested in. And it, it's funny because I started the project by wanting to write about cities that never die. And I was going to focus on really, really old cities that have been continuously occupied like Damascus, which has been occupied for thousands of years, or or mm-hmm. even a place like Um, you know, like London, which has been occupied by, you know, for a couple thousand years. Um, Mm -hmm. Still pretty impressive. Um, And then I just got really interested in the idea of cities that are abandoned and then are then subsequently called lost, even though we all basically know where they are, Uh, because it kind (laughs) of lets you see, it kind of lets you tell a life story of a city a little bit. You sort of get to see it grow up and, and you know, have a kind of Uh, fancy middle age where it gets really uh, popular and lots of people move there and then it it goes into decline and dies. And so you get a neat little narrative or maybe not neat. In fact, they're quite messy narratives, really. Mm -hmm. Um, But at least you kind of see a beginning and an end. Um, And I think that was that's why I wound up being drawn to these four cities is that they had such interesting and different life stories.
0: And there's also I mean, history, We tend, when we talk about the past, to talk about the past as if it is a fixed place, as if if London has always been London, say, or or as if there there have been no changes. And one of the beautiful ways that you approach... the research here is by looking at urban life. And so you're, you're essentially recognizing that all the same forces that are at play in our life right now, uh, everything from, you know, boondoggle construction projects to political corruption, to over-policing, to uh, natural disasters, to changing technologies, to importing religion uh, and food and things, th- these are all at work. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's I don't know that I've ever thought about history as a history of urban planning it, it, did that come early on for you or is this always how you've thought of history? Is this connected to your, you know, world building for science fiction? Like wh- how how did you get your in to history not as a fixed place but as a kind of a, a discovery of multiple narratives?
1: That's that's a really great question. I think that I've for most of my adult life that this is how I've looked at history and it's partly because I went to college at Berkeley where I had a lot of professors who emphasized that history is not a fixed point and that we're always learning new things and that um, depending on whose perspective you take, one historical moment might be a triumph, but through someone else's eyes it might be dystopia or it might be an apocalypse. And so I never, I mean once I was in college, I mean elementary school history of course is always very simplistic, but once you're in college um, I I think that I I never had the illusion that there wasn't, that there wasn't some element of history being contested. Uh, and so cities are a great way to stage that, um, that kind of complexity, I guess, uh, to, to think about the fact that a city can contain people from two very different groups, because of course, one of the things that we've learned from, uh, sort of modern chemical analysis, isotope analysis of um, skeletal remains is that cities have always been full of immigrants. Um, We now Mm. have the ability to um, look at tooth enamel uh, on human remains and see where the person grew up based on chemical signatures that are embedded in their enamel when they're kids. So you can say, oh, uh, you can't say exactly where they came from, like Main Street in this town, but you can say, for example, if they traveled 500 miles to get to the place where they eventually died. Um, and so that kind of analysis, you know, shows for sure things that were already hinted at in urban remains, where we will find, or archaeologists will find, um, you know, very different architectural styles in a city or very different kinds of art. Um, and now we know that's because cities were had immigrant neighborhoods in them in the ancient world just as much as they did now. And so that's one way that you can kind of take a city apart and sort of look at it as uh, many different stories. And then of course, cities are, most cities are kind of characterized by having caste systems or class hierarchies of some kind. And so you can also look at a city as, you know, the story of the very rich, but also the story of the very poor and the enslaved Um, and the laborers who actually build the city. Um, And again, that that gives you that complexity, because I think in the in the elementary school version of history that I was sort of disparaging Mm. earlier, a lot of times we're just taught the stories of kings and queens and, you know, and emperors. And like and of course, when you're a kid, that's very exciting. It's like the person who's at the head of the army or has like the coolest castle. Um, But those people play very little role in city life actually it turns out you know they're not the ones who are building the moat and building the street building the houses um you know they may be kind of funding them through warfare or through um enslavement of various kinds um but they're not they're not the thing that makes the city what it is the city is people and like if you only have five members of the royal family that's not a city that's like a you know that's a living room.
0: <laughs> so. so yeah, and essentially w- w- in, for much of much of history, certainly in the 1800s and and, uh, more recently, the focus was always on essentially um, we would find out how Jeff Bezos lived and then extrapolate that everyone lived that way. Is that what you like? Our focus has been entirely on the the ruling elites with very little attention for, well, you know, who, who, who brought them breakfast? (laughs) Where did the food come from? Or who
1: who grew the food or who built their castle. Um, Mm. And I don't think, you know, it's not as if we've been taught that everybody in history lived like Jeff Bezos. It was just that I mean, and this was partly pragmatism, because oftentimes the you know, the rich people of the past were the ones who had homes that were more durable. Right. Like they build with stone. Um, and so, for example, at Angkor, uh, which I write about in the book, which was the capital of the Khmer Empire in Southeast Asia. Um, today, it's it, Angkor is located in Cambodia. Um, for a long time, Europeans who stumbled on Angkor's remains looked at these castles and temples that had basically been downtown. You know, it was like sort of Mm -hmm. the the built up downtown area. And they were like, oh, well, this must have been the city. Like it was just this, you know, sort of downtown area because the, the people who were the ordinary laborers built with wood. And so all of their homes were gone and the street grid had been covered over by fast-growing vegetation. So it was impossible to sort of look out and say, oh my gosh, like, well, maybe the houses are gone, but we can see all these roads and these pools um, because people built pools in their backyards um, Mm. because they knew how to live at Angkor, I guess. (laughs) I was just (laughs) thinking like, actually, that's kind of great. It's Um, a good deal. I know. So Uh, So it was really only in the last 10 years when archaeologists started using tools like LIDAR um, to fly over the city grid at Angkor. And LIDAR is a great instrument for kind of peeling away underbrush and measuring minute differences in the height of the ground. So if you have a city grid that has, you know, streets and that has um, housing foundations, you're going to get to see that because you're bouncing lasers off the ground and the lasers can kind of get in between the leaves of the trees uh, if you're lucky. Um, And so because of that, archaeologists actually uncovered this massive city grid that had surrounded the downtown area at Angkor and they were able to say, oh, this is where all the normal people lived. And guess what? There were a million of those people. (laughs) There were only a few people, you know, living in Angkor Wat and Angkor Tom's temple enclosures. And so it's that kind of um, shift in our technological ability that's allowed us to make some of these um, discoveries and claims about uh, the working class. So it's not just that people were ignorant and saying like, well, there were only kings. It was like, we mm. literally didn't have the tools to see where those people lived. And so it was very hard to talk about um, in the modern world. It was very hard to talk about who they were and what they were doing because we just didn't, we couldn't see their homes. We couldn't see right. their Right. And, names.
0: and- but also with, with when you talk about Angkor, and I guess through all four of the cities, there is also the assumption that is made by the early uh, explorers and archaeologists and historians that that there was a trajectory and that sort of European history was the base model. There's a kind of a centering of, of, of whiteness, uh, of, of European uh, approaches, as if that is... The way it always was, and that's one of the reasons I think that you suggest that Angkor was seen. They just assumed that people lived in in stone rather than than wood, right? They didn't. They that's didn't...
1: right. Yeah, and I think this is this is a uh, an issue that I deal with throughout the book, which is partly that archaeology comes out of the West, um, and it is in in some ways a white settler science um, mm-hmm. or or social science, I should say. And so, a lot of the early understandings of places like Angkor, which was, of course, not a Western city, um, were plagued by bias because, yeah, I mean, Europeans expected to see uh, what they would see in the remains of a European city, which would be stone. And so then mm-hmm. they just assumed, well, anything that isn't, you know, th- that the stone is all there is. And because the um, the palaces and temples at Angkor were enclosed in walls that looked very much like the walls of a European city. Um, We call these temple enclosures and there would have been hundreds of people living inside them. Um, So Europeans were like, oh, well, that's the city. You know, it's just a few hundred people. And even though there were um, uh, carvings and, you know, documents from the Khmer period, attesting that there were about a million people living in the city, Europeans said, well, you can't trust that stuff, you know, which isn't entirely wrong. Like, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of exaggeration written into the stone of of steles from ancient cities. Um, But this would have been a crazy level of exaggeration to claim that hundreds of people was actually hundreds of thousands of people. Um, And of course, once the city grid was revealed, it was very, very clear where those people lived. And um, that indeed there there had been hundreds of thousands of people at the city. So, and I think, right. again, this is, like I said, this is a common problem. Anytime you hear of a city that's called lost, it's almost always European settlers who've come up with that idea. And it's because it was lost to them, not to the people who actually right. are the descendant population. <laughs>
0: So let's maybe go through the the four cities. And you start with a city that is... The only way I can wrap my head around it is sort of using uh, the inexact... The, the pyramids, that that for Chantal the pyramids are almost as far in their future as they are in our past, right? I mean, that's sort of where that's situated in time.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to think about it.
0: And so that which just... I can't even... <laughs> every time I think that, it, it, I find it just so awe-inspiring. So this you describe as is what may be really the first urban settlement and you know one of the things you get to in there is the notion that this may be the first place that anyone would have asked anyone else uh, two people two strangers meeting where are you from because for the first time our connection to land and again I love that idea of the first people meeting on the street saying where are you from instead of whose family are you connected to Or, or what you know what what Um, So maybe can you just tell us a little bit about Çatalhöyük, where it is, um, uh, how it was built and and what we know about it?
1: Sure. So this is a Neolithic city, um, which means it was built at a time when uh, stone tools were the height of technology and they were pretty, pretty high tech. Actually, you can do a lot with stone tools. Um, Çatalhöyük is located in central Turkey and it was a proto-city or a city, depending on who you talk to. It was definitely the city of its day, because at its largest, um, there were probably about 5,000 people, maybe as much as 10,000 people living there at the same time. And this was a period in human history when most people were either living in very small farming communities of maybe 50 or 100 people, or they were nomadic. um, And they Mm -hmm. were living in, again, very small communities of people who settled only seasonally in different locations and and spent all their time on the road uh, or spent most of their time on the road. And so it's a very, it occupies a very special place in human history when we're making a transition from a largely nomadic species to a largely settled species. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, if you listen to some uh, thinkers today, you know, maybe this was the greatest tragedy in human history that we did this. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But regardless of whether you think it was a good thing or a bad thing, it was a huge thing. It would have required humans to completely reorient their relationship to the land and to each other. And that's why I suggest in the book and what you were talking about that this would have really been the first time in history when people thought of themselves as being from a place instead of being from a family. Because if you're a nomad, um, it's really your band or your family or your tribe that matters. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter where you're from is is not even a question because you you travel over a landscape. But once you're living in a settlement year round, that place becomes part of who you are. And the way that we see the people at Chitalhuyuk showing us that in their architecture, is that they built their homes uh, with all kinds of very personal pieces inside the walls. I I shouldn't say pieces, but they they built their homes with a lot of um, symbolic objects embedded in the walls, as if they were really trying to lay claim to them. And perhaps the most startling symbolic object to us as modern people is that they buried their dead under their beds mm. in, in their homes, and I think that um, once we kind of get over our modern taboo about how kind of upsetting that might be, um, we can start to understand how people who had never lived in a single place before might use put it might use their ancestors' bones as a way of kind of laying claim to land the way they had once laid claim to family. It's a way of joining mm-hmm. the family to the land. And once you see it from that perspective, you realize that Chatalhöyük, the city, was a living being for the people who lived there. Um, the way cities are for us now, like people mm-hmm. often talk about their cities as, you know, as a person or as a personality, um uh, and in fact uh NK Jemison's latest novel The City We Became is about literally cities being embodied in people mm-hmm. and um and in fact a lot of the stuff that she talks about in that novel is kind of echoed in Four Lost Cities um
0: <clears throat> the notion so, of the personality type sort of uh, uh, coming through that each city or each borough each a- area has its own yeah. kind of real flavor that we embody as we live there right yeah
1: it's a flavor And it's but it goes beyond just kind of like each city has its own superhero personality. I think in in real life, you know, when we're when we're looking at the people of Chetalhoyuk, they were simply trying to um, think about how was the city part of their identities? So not that the city itself necessarily had its own independent identity, but that they that it was part of them, that it was Mm. that humans could be. Um, connected to a place, and again, that would have been such a shocking and new idea. You know, if if almost all your friends and all of your ancestors had been nomads, and you were suddenly asserting, uh, mm. "Hey, I but I live in a place," um, <clears throat> you know, that would be kind of like the punk rock of the day, <laughs> um, <laughs> because it would have been a very jarring assertion. And so, I think that that these burial practices. Um, And some of the other symbolic practices where they put um, animal bones in the walls and other symbolic objects buried in the walls um, and in the floor uh, was a way of saying, no, no, the land is part of us. The land has a spirit and the spirit is is our ancestors, um, because that's that's who they kind of buried in the in the floor.
0: Right. And Chetel, one of the other interesting things is they each new inhabitant, I think I've been in this right, rebuilt the home over top of the like would would, would sort of yeah. uh, uh, start afresh, right? And but build it exactly the same to the same specifications, the same layout.
1: Yeah, so the city um is built with all of it's it's sort of like super apartments, um, or like a, a honeycomb. So each house is pressed up against another house, and everyone entered their homes through doors in the roof. So you would have climbed a ladder up to the roof, and then walked across your neighbor's roofs to get to your house, and then kind of gone through the roof and then down another ladder. And people did a lot of work on the roofs. Um, It was kind of like that's where the sidewalk was. Um, And you know, as they uh, because the the city was built with mud brick, um, it would crumble away. You know, eventually, uh, really, relatively fast. In fact, and so when someone died or the family left their house, the next person who wanted to live there would usually knock the house down, um, do some ritualistic burning of what had been in the house, and then they'd put a fresh layer of clay and a fresh layer of plaster down and build anew. And indeed, usually with the same house layout, rooms in the same place, uh, the cabinets in the same place, and the fire and, you know, the hearth in the same place. And over time, because Chatalhoyuk was occupied for over a thousand years, um, you know, they built a hill. <laughs> the, the city is a hill, but the hill is the city. Like, they started on <laughs> flat. <laughs> and so by wild. the end, it, it's actually, it's, it's a significant hill. Um, and one archaeologist I talked to, uh, Ruth Tringham, who spent a lot of time excavating there, said that she thought – And she was only half joking. She said, you know, I think they maybe abandoned this place because they just got sick of walking up and down the hill to get water every day. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, it's actually not entirely impossible that that was one of many factors that that kind of made people leave. But, um,
0: and but we yeah, don't it was, know exactly why they left, right? This is one of we the mysteries. Don't. Is, but you suggest – you suggested that that the people that left there may have there may have been a rejection of the notion of urban dwelling in, in their leaving. Is that, that that most of them would have gone back to a nomadic lifestyle? they yeah. would have seen this as a fad, a thousand year fad that, that ended yeah. badly. Yeah,
1: well, and of course, Chatalhoyuk wasn't the only settlement like this. I should say, you know, it wasn't when we say like it was the first city. We we can't know what was the first. We know that there were a few other. Um, mega settlements like this in the area. It was very, very rare. This would not have been common. Um, And so as Chitalhuyuk aged, um, a lot of things probably pushed people out. Um, And certainly some of them would have gone back to being nomads. Some would have gone back to small um, kind of farm uh, towns. Others might have gone to other mega settlements like Chitalhuyuk. There was another one Um, in the area that was, um, uh, I think it was a couple hundred uh, kilometers away, but within, you know, reasonable walking distance. Um, But what we see in the archaeological record is that on the Konya plain, which is where Chatalhöyük's two little hills rose up over time, There's this long period when Chatalhöyük is a going concern where no one is building any villages in this vast, beautiful plain where where Chatalhöyük is. And then as Chatalhöyük starts to empty out, suddenly little villages start springing up all over this plain. So it's almost like a dandelion kind of like releasing its Mm. seeds. You know, people are not running away. Um, They're just going to smaller communities that are more widely separated, almost like, they got a little sick of their neighbors <laughs> and they got a little sick of living so squished up together in a place that was falling apart. And um, when archeologists talk about the abandonment of Chitalhoyuk, there's a couple things they emphasize. And that I think the most important one is that it was abandoned really slowly. It wasn't like one day everyone was like, screw this, we're going home. It was over a period of hundreds of years that we see the population getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and even after people stop living there, they continue to use it as a graveyard. Um, mm-hmm. It becomes kind of a holy place. Um, and some of the very last burials are from classical antiquity. So they're only a couple thousand years old. So this is a city that's 9,000 years old. People are continuing to use it for thousands of years after it's abandoned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you know that's an important thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is that um this was kind of a city before cities and so another possibility that i find very juicy as a science fiction writer is that maybe people just hadn't quite figured out the social machinery required Mm -hmm. to live at such a large population size in such a small area like maybe they still had the belief systems of nomads and they were trying to cram these belief systems of nomads into this tiny little place that really wasn't designed for people whose beliefs all involve movement and um, you know being um, uprooted all the time. You know they needed maybe a new set of beliefs um, or a new mm-hmm. set of like social etiquette, maybe. You know, like maybe it was sure. like an etiquette crisis, <laughs> um, because once people uh, leave Chatal, there's a period of a couple thousand years where people are just not really building large cities. And then suddenly you start to see the cities of Mesopotamia, like the classic sort of um, mm-hmm. cities of, of our history, like Ur and Uruk. Um, and those cities look really different and they're much bigger and there's way more people living there. And it's almost, again, I, I wonder if, and this is pure speculation, um, you know, thanks to some archeologists who've kind of thought about this too, is that maybe during those couple thousand years when people between Chital and Uruk, People were just reinventing social structures and reinventing mm. social niceties and figuring out how do you have a thousand people in one place without them all just murdering each other? Um, right.
0: So, you well, know, we think even in the modern day, right? The, 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 the urban-rural divide is still with right. us. This is 9,000 years ago. So, of course, there would have been some, some culture shock <laughs> between various massive, ways of living. Massive,
1: massive culture shock. And, you know, I find it so interesting that Um, One of the movies that everyone's been talking about from the past couple months is the movie Nomadland, which is all about this new kind of generation of nomads, um, people who sometimes are willingly nomads, sometimes they've Mm. been forced into being nomads because they've lost their homes, and they formed a nomadic culture, which is very different, and they're stigmatized because they refuse to settle down. And I think it's so interesting that we've gone in just a couple thousand years really from a world of people who would have thought of nomadism as the norm and probably would have thought city people were gross and creepy and like, (laughs) like they're sitting there living in their own poop. Jeez. Um, You know, that it's, it's kind of gross. And like, but at the same time, like now we have the opposite idea that like, oh, if someone's a nomad, there must be something wrong with them Um, or they must be, yeah yeah or or they must be from the past you know and, right. and both of those things of course are just completely wrong
0: so this was a slow um trickle of people leaving the city they might not even have noticed for the first cup you know 100 years that the city mm-hmm. was in decline um the next city that you look at is pompeii now Pompeii, I think everyone knows the dramatic way that Pompeii <laughs> ended, right? It's one of these things. But I'll just say, there's so much detail in your book. And so so it's so fascinating hearing you talk with the scientists. But the thing that got me about Pompeii is that it's only 12,000 people. I don't know why I have, I'm so stuck on this. I, like, I just think, I've, I think it's such a small, I think Pompeii in my mind is this grand city. Uh, and it's really small by contemporary standards. But so tell us, Pompeii though, it's not, just the sudden end of the volcano, you you describe a kind of a, um, the way the city had sort of grown and contracted and and expanded over a long, long, long period of time. And that kind of the volcano may have been the the thing that really said, okay, we can't live here anymore. Um, but maybe can we talk about, just just talk a little bit about Pompeii.
1: Sure. Um, So yeah, Pompeii is a really interesting city for a lot of reasons. It is true that it was only about 12,000 people who lived there as sort of inhabitants, but it was a tourist town. So Mm. it would have had lots and lots of visitors all the time. Um, Like on any given day- Like 1,000
0: pubs you said, right?
1: There's 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 161 (laughs) pubs for 12,000 people. So do the math, like there was a lot of dining out. Yeah, there was a lot of partying. For a town of that size, they had two full-size theaters. Um, so again, clearly aimed at visitors. Um, and it was a party town. I mean, when when Nero was emperor, which was just really a, a couple decades before the place was was buried in ash, um, they had had, Pompeii had had such a huge street riot after a gladiator game that Nero forbade them from having any more gladiator games for like 10 years. So you know that if Emperor Nero is coming down on you for partying too hard, like there's some partying going on. So so Pompeii was kind of at the heart of a commercial network. Um, It was located on a river and people would have come into a port with all kinds of stuff from across the Mediterranean, all kinds of Um, you know, things like linen or wine or um, grain, and um, would have passed through Pompeii on their way inland to bring all these tasty, wonderful things into the other towns. And so it was very bustling. It was a commercial area. A lot of the people who lived in Pompeii commuted to uh, port areas because they owned warehouses or they were in the import-export business. And Pompeii itself um, had a uh, and export uh, this fish sauce called garum, um which was uh, just beloved all throughout the Roman Empire. It was like basically the um like the chutney or the ketchup of mm. of Rome. I mean, you just put garum on everything uh, to to spice it up. So Pompeii had its own very special garum. And so when um, when Vesuvius erupted and destroyed the city, uh, it was after a long buildup, like there had been some uh, earthquakes and some smoke and and small rocks were being launched. And so a lot of people were able to escape actually, only about a 10th of the city perished. So contrary to the usual representation of Pompeii, like that it just sort of like the volcano went off and everybody was frozen and like instantly, or instantly, you know, whatever cooked. You know, actually, people were were uh, getting out and there were many, many refugees who went into neighboring towns in the Bay of Naples and were just, you know, they had nothing. Um, And so what was fascinating to me was that the emperor at the time, Emperor Titus, uh, he had just been named emperor and he was desperate for the approval of the people Um, And so one of the things he did was he created this really robust uh, relief package for the refugees. He came and he toured the site of Pompeii and some neighboring cities uh, that had also been buried in ash um, and made a big show of uh, how much he cared for the people. And then he took money from people who had perished in the Blast, uh, who hadn't left any, who didn't have any heirs, he -hmm. took all of their wealth and transferred it to the refugees. And the way he did that was by um, commissioning new neighborhoods and new roads to be built in nearby towns where the refugees could live. So not only was he giving the refugees housing and um, access to roads so that they could continue their business. Um, but he was giving jobs to the people who were in these towns that had not necessarily been affected by, um, by the blast by the, the volcano, but they were having to welcome all these refugees in. And so he was kind of sweetening the deal by saying, well, look, Mm -hmm. I'm going to pay you guys to like build neighborhoods and build roads. Your town is going to be way nicer if you let these refugees in. And you're gonna have jobs for like 10 years because you're gonna be building all this stuff. So it was an incredibly effective relief package. Um, And the Roman empire got richer because of it, because a lot of the people who inherited this wealth um, were freedmen, um, former slaves, whose entire training was in running businesses for their masters. So when they inherited that money and they inherited their master's businesses, they were able to just hit the ground running. They, they weren't like, wait, how do you run a business? They were like, nope, this is literally in, in ancient Rome, like generally your freed slaves ran your business interests for you. So it was a great boon for um, what passed for the middle class in Rome. I mean, they didn't really have a middle class, but freed slaves were kind of that. Um, right. So it was it was really like, in a sense, a very kind of modern relief mm-hmm. package. You know, it, it's very recognizable to anyone from, say, Canada or Europe, um, you know, to see a government come in and say, hey, we got to take care of people who've been displaced. Uh, so I just, I found that super interesting um, so about interesting.
0: it. And Pompeii also, it's, I mean, contemporary in the sense that you, when you describe it, there's there's growing social change. There's there's issues with gender representation, freedom of assembly, freedom of the slaves, who who has what rights. There's there's gentrification that you describe mm-hmm. happening, right? You know, so these are all things that we're very, very used to.
1: Yeah, no, Pompeii as a city, if you, I, I urge everyone who, who can to go visit because it's a very pleasant place to visit. And also so much of the city has been revealed that you can really see the different neighborhoods. And right. um, it was a very multicultural city, Pompeii had a lot of business in North Africa. And so you see a lot of um, art and representation and culture from Egypt and other parts of North Africa. Um, There's a temple, one of the most beautiful and expensive temples in the city is to Isis, who is of course an African God. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you get this immediate sense that this was not, you know a a town of you know pure european romans it was totally it was africans it was um, people from all over the Mediterranean. It was, um, you know, people of different classes. And, and those
0: restaurants are all different, right? You've got restaurants that specialize in, in foreign foods, local, mm-hmm. you know, farm to table, local stuff. I mean, you could really yeah, feel. Yeah, no. And that's uh, one of
1: the things that's so delightful is with some of our new, um, you know, chemical analysis, uh, we can actually see like what people were eating Um, Some of the menus, of course, are still left on the wall so we can read the menus. And yeah, there were you could go out and have like African food for dinner. Um, And uh, and also, as you say, that this was in the decades leading up to uh, Vesuvius's eruption. It was a period in the early empire when uh, women were gaining more property rights. Um, It's a very complicated story, but certainly women were not free, but they had a little bit more access to Um, ownership. Um, A lot more rights were being given to freed slaves. Um, It was only very recently that that freed slaves had been given the right to marry. Um, Mm. That hadn't been their right uh, in the Republic. Um, And they also, when they did marry, their children would be born free. Um, And also, uh, one of the things that's super interesting in this period is that there are Freedmen's Associations. Um, And so almost any Roman town that you visit, um, I think it's always interesting to visit what's called the Augustales Temple. Uh, That's often what it's labeled, Uh, but the Augustales um, were a a Freedmen's Association. They were set up by Emperor Augustus uh, and it was an association to help Freedmen um, find a place in society, to give them uh, political power, to give them business connections. Um, and so it's funny that the history books will say it was the cult of Augustales. It was people who <laughs> worshipped Emperor Augustus. And it's like that's no, not that true. was that was not at all what it was. It was literally freed slaves trying to make their lives better. Um, and wow. so there's a, a, bit, a, a beautiful community
0: center, yeah.
1: yeah, it's 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 exactly that. it's It's basically for economic development of people who had been enslaved. And so it's a very, at the moment when Pompeii is buried and kind of frozen in time, it's in the middle of this social revolution that, um, you know, really changed the, um, the nature of of Roman life and changed who could be a Roman citizen and who could have power in Rome. Um, and so it's that's another part of the fun of excavating Pompeii is, is sort of seeing how much history is changing within history, you know, that it's right, not, right, again, right. not a static thing that like we're, we're actually mm-hmm. seeing a transformation take place.
0: And so there we have an environmental collapse that makes the land uninhabitable, right? There's a volcanic eruption and the, the yep. cost of rebuilding <laughs> there would just really not be, you know, sort of a Chernobyl zone in, in some ways and like we're not going to yeah. build here for a while. So then from there we move to Angkor in what is now Cambodia, And what's interesting here is you frame this also as a kind of an environment, a combination of a of a government boondoggle and uh, Mm -hmm. and a slow, slow, slow natural disaster that might be in some ways familiar to many urban dwellers uh, listening to this right now. Um, It would have been a very slow process, where I'm sure there were deniers, people saying the climate's just fine, there's no change to the water flow, everything's okay, right? (laughs) You can see the. that's yeah. right. Uh, so maybe just tell us a little bit about Angkor. Yeah.
1: So at Angkor, uh, Angkor is a classic example of a city that falls apart because of a combination of, a combination of environmental problems and political problems. And basically, um, you know, this is a huge city, and it's at the nexus of two different monsoon systems which means that the city gets a huge amount of rain during the wet season and is extremely dry during the dry season. And the city is designed to handle that by being built around canals that pull water down from the nearby mountains and these massive reservoirs, which if you've ever seen a picture of Angkor Wat, you know, there's these big water reservoirs kind of coming out of it like two wings um, and these are, are massive. I mean, they're, they're many kilometers long um, and these are only two of, of many massive reservoirs in the city. So the city is maintaining itself, maintaining its farms by collecting water in this really rational way and this very um, well-engineered water infrastructure. But over time, uh, there's a lot of political infighting. Um, the city is invaded and then the invaders are repelled there are, you know, multiple, um, you know, insurrections of various kinds. I'm I'm kind of condensing yeah. like 500 years of history, but you can imagine <laughs> it's, I'm telling you, it's not, it's not a stable system. Um, and it's very rare it, at Angkor for there to be um, secession without some kind of conflict because it's not, secession isn't usually within families. Um, so oftentimes a king will come in who's from outside and will have to kind of take the throne by force. So this happens enough times um, that things are a little unstable. Uh, The kings are paying a little bit more attention to politics than maintaining this dramatically important water infrastructure. And then uh, in, you know, the 14th and 15th century, um, sorry, in the 15th and 16th centuries, they're looking at Uh, this phase where they have these massive droughts and massive floods. And it goes on for about a decade or two that they're just having these incredibly terrible, uh, really intense seasons. Um, And it starts to mess up the water infrastructure because the city is flooded multiple times. Mm. And the, um, the Royal family doesn't really want to deal with it. Um, And they're also are, you know, um, massive kind of wars on different fronts. And so finally, after having to deal with crumbling infrastructure and political instability, the royal family finally decides they don't even want to be at Angkor anymore. They're like, they head south and they they go to Phnom Penh where the royal palace still is today. And um, so they're gone. And this is sort of considered to be traditionally, this is in the 15th century, uh, the sort of the end of, of Angkor, because once the royal family is gone, so the history books would tell us, it's no longer a city. However, right. the city is still there. <laughs> still Ooh. tons of people living there. Uh, and we have a lot of evidence um, that people continue thriving in the city for at least 100 years after um, after this floods and after the royal family leaves. And so they're, you know, they're recycling stones to um, continue maintaining the infrastructure. They're no longer, um, you know, able to mobilize as much labor, but they're still still a going concern. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what archeologists say is that there's been this kind of misunderstanding of why the city was abandoned, that it's usually said to be that the city was invaded, um, and taken over and then that was the end. But the fact is that it wasn't, the city was always being invaded and taken over. Like mm-hmm. that wasn't really the problem. The problem was the infrastructure was falling apart. Um, and over that hundred year period after the royal family leaves, people eventually, much like at Chatalhoyuk, slowly go back to farming communities and some of these farms are like built right in the city, you know, Mm -hmm. right in these reservoirs, as the reservoirs dry up, people put farms in there. Um, And so it it kind of goes back to um, being countryside. And when, um, when Europeans stumble on it in the 19th century, that's what they see is just this kind of farm dotted countryside with these castles and these walled enclosures at the center of it. And they think, Oh, the city is is this tiny little blip, and there's all these farms around it. Um, so it's it's. I think again, like with um, you know Huyuk, the biggest lesson here is that cities die really slowly. There's no unless there's a volcano. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The city, the city really slowly empties out, and and it's because of a very complex series of interlocking factors. There's political instability, there's environmental instability, and that leads to infrastructure instability. And maintaining infrastructure turns out to be a big, Mm. important part of keeping your city alive. Like if you want your city to last forever, you really need. A robust government program for maintaining infrastructure, and um, you know maybe you need to pay like a really good minimum wage to your workers and let them unionize, and you know <laughs> all right. that kind of stuff.
0: And I guess Angkor also is a is a maybe the poster child for for listening to scientists rather than the political will in terms of yeah. how you build the reservoir, right? That's <laughs> sort of yeah, that's true. The king the definitely the engineer back
1: yeah, the King and the King's um you know retinue really wanted to build everything on an east-west grid because that is um, you know, spiritually a significant um, kind of way to build. Um it's you know, it it kind of fits in with uh, the spiritual worldview of uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. Mm-hmm. And because um, the city kind of vacillated between Buddhism and Hinduism for a long time. And uh, and unfortunately, building your your reservoirs uh, on a strict <laughs> east west grid means building them on a slope. So some of the big reservoirs never could completely fill because they were <laughs> built on slopes. So they yeah, they they probably weren't as grand looking as as the king would have wanted.
0: <laughs> so and, so from Angkor, we're going to move to St. Louis. Right, St. Louis, the uh, uh, United States. Uh, uh, what is what is now the United States? What is North America? Um, this is interesting because uh, you know the the idea of of vast cityscapes being in 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 central America, like, central part of of United States. I, I think is something that uh, again our history really doesn't focus on. At least uh, you know in a Canadian school, we were taught that. Uh, cities was specifically something that europeans brought right that technology roads infrastructure all these things are these are the gift uh gift (laughs) from from the enlightened europeans who have come over but shocker uh that may not have been exactly strictly true it was actually
1: (laughs) not true in any way um no matter how you slice it it was untrue um So, yeah, I mean, this is, again, a a great example of sort of white settler archaeology basically hiding um, the history of urbanism in North America. And, you know, I think we're familiar with uh, Central and South America, city building, indigenous cities um, were quite spectacular. Uh, And so is this city. We call it Cahokia now because when Europeans stumbled across it in the 17th century, um, there was a tribe living there called the Cahokia. And so um, they just said, okay, fine, it's Cahokia. We don't really, we don't know the name of the group that built the city, uh, but it is now located in Southern Illinois, right across the Mississippi River from St. Louis. And it was a mound building city. um, And we have a lot of those in uh, the area that became the United States they built these massive packed earth pyramids with flat tops so that people could um, put ceremonial buildings on top of them. Um, at the In the downtown area of Cahokia, the uh, biggest pyramid has been nicknamed Monk's Mound because some French monks lived on top of it later. <laughs> um, and Monk's Mound, the footprint of that mound is the same size as the Great Pyramid at Giza. So when the Europeans came and they saw this massive pyramid and the cityscape of Cahokia was full of other mounds like it was Mm -hmm. that was one of their main architectural features. So they looked out onto this big plain in the American bottom and saw all of this terraformed land. It was clear that people had built incredible structures there. Um, Some of the structures were still there and one of the things that Europeans speculated was maybe people from ancient Egypt had come over and built it because (laughs) how could it possibly be that the indigenous people that they were in the process of trying to murder, how could they have built this? Um, And so in the States, I think there's been a lot of um, forgetfulness around Cahokia that was more or less deliberate because the idea that this enormous sophisticated city could have existed here a thousand years ago definitely undermines the narrative of, you know, white settlers arrived and really no one was here. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, this massive urban civilization had been here. And Cahokia was simply the heart of a an urban civilization that was all up and down the Mississippi River. And archaeologists have found many examples of other mound cities that were a little bit smaller. Um, we know that um, the people in the Mississippian culture Again, which was kind of roughly you know, in the nine hundreds and the thousands and um and a little bit beyond, um we know that they were all um, getting together for ceremonies and trading with each other because we see artwork that comes from Cahokia um, at a bunch of different places all along the Mississippi. So we know that people came to Cahokia, um, maybe on pilgrimages, maybe for parties. Um, but it was definitely at the center of Mississippian culture. Um, and I should say the thing that's really interesting about this is that it wasn't even the first mound building indigenous civilization. It was actually the third. Um, and it's a, so the people who were the framers of Cahokia who would have been building these massive, who would have been, I should say, inducing other people to build these giant mounds for them um, would have seen the mounds from previous Civilizations. Um, in Florida, there's, and, and in Louisiana, there are these massive earthworks that are 3,000 years old, in some cases, 5,000 years old. So they would have had their own urban history. The people who built Cahokia would have been like, oh, yeah, we're in this mm-hmm. tradition of people who build these incredible earthen monuments. And so we think of, you know, they would have been thinking of themselves in that context. So they're the greatest urban civilization in a, in a long history of great urban civilizations. Um, and it was a, an enormous city, uh, people there, um, had incredible farm technology. Um, they loved gambling and games. They had a, a, a game that they played that I think of as being kind of like curling. Um, it's called chunky and you play with pucks and, um, there's no brooms. You don't get to like push things around. Sorry. But, um, <laughs> But well, there's the, darts the, g- too, right? There's darts and and pucks. So you have a puck <laughs> that looks a bit like a hockey puck, actually, but you roll it on its side um, and you roll it, and then someone else throws a um a spear and tries to get the spear to hit the exact spot where the puck falls over. So it's like I said, it's kind of a game of skill and also everyone's gambling on it. So everyone who's watching Mm -hmm. is like trying to figure out how close the spear is going to get to where the the chunky um, stone falls. And the chunky stones that were produced at Cahokia were the most kind of coveted and valuable. They were incredibly beautiful, very well designed. And so you see cahokian chunky stones like in you know all these different little settlements all up and down the mississippi because people would come and they'd be like i had a great time watching that chunky game and so i bought a chunky stone to bring home you know like it's like a souvenir um i'm sure that they didn't sort of view it like that and they probably didn't have money so but they but people would bring them home as as mementos and souvenirs and sort of a spiritual um a piece of awesome spiritual memorabilia and um Like I said, it was uh, just a very um, successful city. And again, like with um, Chitalhuyuk, we don't really know why people abandoned the city. There's a lot of different possibilities. Um, We do know that uh, the people who left that city are probably the ancestors of a lot of different tribes and nations, um, a lot of Siouan tribes um, and nations may have, ancestry from the Mississippian world, um, but it's kind of like, I mean, it's a bit like ancient Rome is for Europeans where everyone sort of in Europe is like, oh yeah, Rome is kind of our origin story. And Cahokia is kind of like that for a lot of indigenous groups in North America. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh yeah, a lot of us kind of probably have ancestry from there. It's its a great part of this ancient history of um, indigenous civilization and city building. Um, and so it's become um, a really interesting symbol for, uh, you know, the sophistication of indigenous civilization and history. But also, as I said earlier, it's become a really interesting um, way of thinking about how white settler colonialism erases mm-hmm. history and how I, how easy it is to keep erasing it. Because every time I talk about Cahokia. Um, people from the United States will say to me, I've never heard of this. And it's like, dudes, this is the coolest thing ever. (laughs) Like we have this incredible archaeological site. It's a UNESCO world heritage site. Um, You can visit. It's beautiful. It's like mind blowing. Um, Uh And, you know, it's just not taught in school, you know, I'd
0: never heard of it. I mean, this was the shocker, uh, you know, reading the, the, this, your book Uh, was, this is a, I'd never even heard it, I was very aware of Central and South America and the civilizations there. But, you know, there is a real blind spot for me, at least. And I think uh, probably yeah, most I of think most for, of us.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think a lot of, you know, Westerners and, and people who are like educated in, you know, basically white mm. settler schools, like it's just not part of the curriculum. Um, I, I hope that that's changing. Um, but I think that me too. Uh, what. I guess my final thought about Cahokia is that I think one of the things that's interesting that archeologists talk about, um, both indigenous archeologists and non-indigenous is that it's possible that Cahokia was never built to last um, and that the city building tradition um, in the Mississippian world was different from the European city building tradition in that when Europeans build a city, I think there's always this notion that that it will last forever. And that Mm -hmm. we're trying to put down roots that will keep bearing fruit and that these castles will, you know, be inhabited for the next, you know, 10,000 years or whatever, that that we Mm -hmm. don't think of a city as temporary, even if maybe logically we should. But that maybe for people who lived at Cahokia, um, this was a, a temporary social movement that created this city. And um, no one expected it to last more than a couple hundred years. And indeed, it didn't. Um, It was built up very, very rapidly, uh, starting in the 900s, kind of reached its peak in the 11th and 12th century. Uh, And then, you know, within about 100 years, um, people who lived there had gone back to um, living in smaller communities, nomadic communities. And um, it doesn't seem to have been precipitated by Um, any particular like invasion or Mm -hmm. uh, some kind of climate catastrophe. We do know that there were conflicts in the city's history. We know that there was um, a big shift in how the city was um, organized, Uh, but that doesn't seem to have necessarily precipitated the abandonment. Um, It seems to have been just a typical cities do change, you know, like over time. So, you know, you expect if you look at the life history of a city to see some big shifts um so it's possible that people started leaving cahokia just because they just weren't really interested in the city anymore and they didn't really think it was a big deal you know they were like oh well this is over so going on to the next thing
0: Um, right well and and, that's the one there's a common thread right with all the four the quote-unquote lost cities that you're talking about is that they're never lost and the people are never lost the learning is never lost the culture is never lost it just transforms it moves that's right. It, it spreads out and becomes more diffuse and becomes something new. Um, you know, there's death and renewal, much like a garden. Uh, cities have a maybe a lifespan, and maybe um, the North American original inhabitants had a better understanding of the cyclical nature of everything than, than, than we've brought in. Um, you end the book looking at just San Francisco, uh, and, you know, you think of... of of all of the communities that 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 seem to go through similar kind of boom and bust cycles contraction and and, and how gentrification works and so all of the forces you 're talking about in these four ancient cities are at play today uh, more so and, and it 's even more urgent in some ways because for the first time in human history right we have more people we most of us live in cities, whereas in the past most of us didn 't um, cities were obviously important but so what are the things that and that, uh, this is a brutally uh, difficult question to, to sort of wrap things up on, but I do want to end with some notion. What, what is it that looking at these four cities and then the cities that you live in have lived in, mm-hmm. what, what has it taught you about, about urban living and about, about how we should be approaching um, every you know the, the, the challenge we're, we're facing now? Is there, is, there, is there some fundamental lessons you picked up uh, that, that span all four of these cities and contemporary reality?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the number one um, lesson is infrastructure. And I hate to sound wonky, <laughs> but <laughs> the the common thread running through all of these cities is that when the infrastructure starts to fall apart, um, that is the beginning of the end. And of course, it can be quite dramatic if the infrastructure is buried in hot ash. Um, mm. it's, it's kind of a, um, a gimme there. Uh, but <laughs> In other cases, um, it's it's very easy to see how um, basically mismanagement leads to the city becoming less livable. And that kind of helps. I think it helps us think about what matters in a city when we start to realize how important it is to have well-maintained infrastructure, because the people who maintain the infrastructure tend to be working class folks, frontline workers, the people who now we're calling, um, you know, uh, the most important workers.
0: (laughs) The essential workers. Essential
1: workers. Yeah. Um, And they are essential. Uh, These are people who are actually making the city run. And so that's made me think a lot about things like minimum wage, which is a big debate in the U.S. right now. Um, and rights for farm workers, which is a big has been a big issue in my home state of California my entire life. Um, these are the people who are going to prevent our cities from falling apart. And so I think this is a kind of um, clarion call both for city planners, people who are just kind of doing the engineering side of like how do we build a city, uh, but also government. Um, and, you know, the people who are thinking about how to compensate, people who are building the city. Um, So I think it's, you know, cities are this puzzling combination of engineering and science and government and ethics, basically, how do you want to run your economy uh, really gets into an ethical question. It's not even necessarily a government question, especially in the States, (laughs) um, Mm. where so many things are privatized. And so that I think, so for me, the overarching lesson is that you really that a city can't survive if it's got both unstable government and unstable infrastructure or unstable environmental conditions. Um, And so that we need to think about both of those things. Um, And when you look at the history of cities, um, one of the amazing things that I saw over and over in all of these cities is that they do go through tough times and bounce back, a city Mm -hmm. can almost totally empty out and then fill up again and become a, a new vital part of its culture um, and so a city's fate is not determined by just one blow in other words if your city is flooded like say new orleans was that doesn't mean it's a it's doomed to die it just means that you know we need to be thinking about how we can make sure the infrastructure will deal with the next blow better um, And it is really typical for cities to have tough times and boom times and, um, you know, people are always asking me to predict like, okay, which cities are gonna die? (laughs) And I keep saying like, it takes a long time for a city to die and a city that looks like it's dying might actually be in the first stages of revitalization. Um, And that's why it's really important for us to remember our urban history um, and look back at cities like Cahokia and realize that Cahokia is part of our history in in the Americas, you know, and that cities that are built to be temporary shelters, maybe that's a good idea, you know, maybe we should learn from that, or um, maybe we should learn from the example of a place like Angkor, which had incredible water infrastructure and really just got kind of screwed up over time. But for a while, um, you know, that was a city that existed in a climate that what that many people would consider completely inhospitable for an urban environment, mm-hmm. you know, that the, and as we're going into climate change, um, you know, whether that's, I should say, you know, as we get more extreme weather, um, mm-hmm. more often because of climate change, um, you know, we might want to think about how do we build a city that's like a long-lasting anchor? <laughs> you
0: know, right. how, do
1: we, how do we think about water storage um, and how do we think about it in a long-term way? Um, so I think that we need to remember our urban history, learn from our mistakes, and remember that infrastructure is what keeps the city together. And the people who build the infrastructure are really the most important people in the city and those right. people need to be supported. So um, yeah, I think that's, that's my big lesson other than the <laughs> fact that I love cities and I, I do really hope that our cities are able to survive.
0: That was my conversation with Annalie Newitz about their stunning new book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books. Wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller Happy to sell you some great books. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.